The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Today's scripture reading will be from Matthew 5, 21 to 26. Again, that will be from Matthew 5, 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come in terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and then be put to prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Park Church. I hope you're well. Looking forward to getting into this passage with you all. Before we do, I just want to acknowledge, and maybe you've been feeling this this week, I think for a lot of us uh, over the past weeks, beginning just to feel the wear of just the kind of the exhaustion that's setting in in this season. And if that's the case for you, just want you to know that's normal. I'm feeling that also right now. So even as we are gathered around the city today, I want to pray that God will give us strength, even in our weakness, and give us um, a hunger for his word, even in our exhaustion, would actually speak to our hearts and bring grace and refreshment and transformation in life to us in this time. And so we're going to pray together. I want to encourage you, God is with you right where you are. He's actually with you. And, and that's good news. He cares about you. Uh, he's present. He's paying attention. And so let's pray that he would work in power in this time. Um, Jesus, we, we need you. I feel so tired. I feel so tired and so many of my friends around the city, your children, uh, just feel tired. Uh, People that are struggling with depression, frustration, kind of uh, mentally overwhelmed, emotionally zapped. And so uh, wherever people are all around the city, would you remind them that you see them, you know them, and that you love them? Um, There are people that are right now feeling the same things and they don't know you yet. They haven't found uh, out about your love and don't yet know the grace and the life that you give. And so for those that are listening, that are just exploring Christianity, Jesus, would you speak to them in powerful ways that you would help them to see your presence and your love and your care and your power to forgive and to restore and to um, give life and that you'd pour out life on us today. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Uh, We live in what many have called a culture of outrage. In fact, for the past several years, a lot of different thinkers and writers have reflected on this reality of kind of the outrage in our culture and how it's become very prevalent. It's really the the air that we breathe, the environment that we live in is an environment that's really dominated, at least in public discourse, is dominated by anger. 
And uh, you don't have to kind of like be a genius or a sociologist to see it. All you have to do is turn on the news uh, or a news program in the morning or a news program in the evening or watch, uh, you know, whatever your, you know, left or right or, you know, center news station is. And you're going to find people that are frustrated and kind of arguing back and forth, not just with different opinions, but with some sort of vitriolic rage or outrage against people that have different opinions. You, you hop on social media, you look at Twitter and look through some of the most prominent Twitter accounts, you're going to find vitriol, you're going to find anger, you're going to find outrage that's being lobbed back and forth from person to person and from people group to people group with, with incredible um, anger. If you look through Facebook among your friends and you look through Facebook comments, which I just do not recommend, generally speaking, if you want to have a life-giving day, um, but if you do, you're going to find frustration and outrage. And people are angry about all sorts of different things. It can be politics. The left is mad at the right and the right's mad at the left. It can be the economy. It can be uh, how you raise your family, how you think about education, how you approach things in this world, whether you live in a city and look at people in suburban contexts or rural contexts, or you live in a suburban or a rural context and how you think about people in the city. And there's just frustration, not just disagreement, but real anger towards people that are different than one another, it's become so common. It's become really prevalent, almost where it's seen as normal. And then you kind of come into a season like this, a global pandemic, and there was like a brief moment at the beginning of the stay-at-home orders where it felt like this kind of unifying sense of the, the sort of the public discourse that had been so polarizing prior to the pandemic finally kind of like settled in this sense of togetherness. We're in this together. But that was such a short-lived time where we're back into frustration and outrage about how the government's handling this or how different people are handling this, right? Some people are mad at the government. Some people are mad at the people that are mad at the government. And this is the sort of air that we're breathing. And it's not pleasant. It's not um, encouraging. It's not life-giving, but it's actually become pretty normal. It's become pretty normal. It's almost seen as just the way things are. And so as people have reflected on this culture of outrage, what, what they've begun to see and people have begun to see is that especially in a place where we have such easy access through social media to proliferate our opinions to the world and where there's this sheer, the sheer volume of opinions that are being kind of voiced and vocalized out there, what we're finding is that those that get most traction, those that are most noticed and paid attention to and shared and distributed are the people that are sharing their opinions with more anger and malice and volume. And so it just creates this sort of like toxic environment, again, that we start to think is just the way things are, but it's not the way they're intended to be. It's not what God's designed. In fact, the sort of anger and the resentment and the contempt that so dominates our culture is leading us into a really subhuman existence, uh, a really a painful existence where human beings are withering, where families wither because of frustration and ang anger within family systems, where societies wither, where nations wither, where, where we as a whole race of people, as human beings, are experiencing withering because of the destructive effects of unattended anger and resentment. And that's what Jesus is actually leading us into in Matthew chapter 5. He's actually targeting something that is destroying humanity. And he pushes into it in a way that's not so much surfacey and behavioral. He actually pushes in into the depths of our heart to kind of look at the heart level attitudes that begin to kind of 
erode and bring corruption into our own hearts and then through us that we tend to spread into our relationships and our societies. And he's offering a better way. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this, this discourse of Jesus actually teaching what the way of his kingdom is, what he's teaching is how human beings are supposed to experience flourishing in his presence, what it means to be truly human. And he's going to lead us into a much better way. And at the core of this passage is this sort of juxtaposition of this reality that anger and resentment lead to a withering life and destruction. And on the other hand, postures of grace and reconciliation lead to life and life to the full. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 5. If you have a Bible, I want you to open it back up. I kind of want to warn you that Jesus doesn't play games uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. We're into the, the kind of the thick, the body of the Sermon on the Mount, and it is, uh, it is prickly. Um, the next several weeks uh, are challenging. They're going to push into areas that are uncomfortable for us, and it's actually really, really good. He's going sta- to challenge the status quo, and it's a status quo that's destroying lives, and he's going to push pretty hard, but not to crush people, but actually to lead us to transformation in life. And so, um, again, if you have a Bible, we're going to look at, starting in, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 21. In this section, for the rest of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to look at an Old Testament or a law from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, um, notably many of them from the Ten Commandments. And he's, he's going to talk about the, the kind of behavioral surface level interp- interpretation that was the sort of prominent interpretation of the day. He's going to look at that and he's going to say, but I'm calling you to something deeper. I'm calling you to something fuller. I'm not coming to kind of bypass those commandments, but to bring you into the full intent of what they were intended to lead you towards, the full righteousness that God desires from his people. And so we're going to start in verse 21. I want you to hear this. Again, this is Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He's saying, You've heard that it was said to those of old. He's actually speaking about the sixth commandment and the commandment that the Lord God gave to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And he says, You've heard, you've memorized, you know all about this commandment that you shouldn't murder. Thou shalt not murder. And that those who do murder are liable to judgment, which it talks about that in the rest of the sort of what we call the book of the covenant or the sort of unpacking the case laws that were given to the people of Israel saying, if somebody does murder somebody, if somebody kills somebody in a criminal way, here are the judgments that were given. And those judgments were really clear in the Old Testament that the consequence or the penalty for murder was the death penalty. So he's saying, you've heard that it was said that you shouldn't murder, and if you murder somebody, you're going to be subject to the penalty of that crime, which is death. And, uh, And he doesn't leave it there. He's saying, that's what you've heard, which is a real commandment. But let's be honest. I I think as I think about the people of Israel in this context, that was something that they were pretty comfortable with. And if they thought about the Ten Commandments as the rules that were governing their life, then, then the idea of not murdering is a fairly attainable standard. Right? Like a part of me like wishes Jesus would have just left it there. Hey, remember everybody, don't murder. Because then I feel like pretty good. I, I like that commandment. Number one, I would prefer not to be murdered. And number two, I feel pretty good so far in my life on that one. Like I've, I've done that one decently well. And so I kind of feel like, hey, as far as the sixth commandment goes, I'm kind of crushing it and feel pretty good about myself. And I want Jesus to just kind of 
Let it stand there. Like so long as we don't do this kind of like ultimate thing of taking the life of another human being, then you're good and God's happy with you and I'm happy with you and you're super faithful and this is what flourishing humanity is. Don't kill people. But sort of like underneath that, whatever you want to do to degrade human life and to hurt others and have attitudes that lead to destruction and pain and, and, and severing of relationships and bitterness that corrodes souls, like that's all good just so long as it doesn't sort of like escalate to the point of taking the life of another. That's not what he does. Um, he takes it deeper because there were people in that society that felt like so long as I can kind of like obey the surface level rules, then God will be happy with me. And that's not the purpose of the law, which is to kind of like forbid the, the worst possible behaviors. The purpose of the law, even in the Old Testament, was to show us God's wisdom for life and ultimately to lead us to our understanding of our need for a savior who could transform our hearts, our hearts that are bent away from God's plan, God's desire, God's wisdom to try to forge our own way. The law was showing us here's God's way and our hearts are so prone to wander. And so to reduce God's law to don't murder and feel pretty good about it misses the whole point. Misses the whole point. Now we shouldn't murder people, right? Like he's not moving away from that, but he takes us deeper. And the heart of what he's saying is this, that unattended anger and contempt is a path to destruction. Murdering somebody isn't the only way to destroy life. Unattended anger and contempt is a path to destruction. It will wither your soul and wither your community. And so I want to actually talk about that a little bit. Let's look at it in the passage. Jesus says this, verse 22. He said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother and that could be everyone who's angry with his brothers or sisters, looking at, in particular, the family of God, though anger, anger with other people outside of the family of God is not prescribed either. We're called to love everybody, our neighbors, our friends, our enemies, the, the family of God. Everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He's actually taking this, this rule of murdering, the, the sixth commandment, is bringing us down to the heart level attitude that it comes from. That to get to the place of murdering somebody, before that, we actually find in our heart an anger and a contempt. Now, when we start talking about anger, it's complicated because anger is a human emotion. It's a really natural human emotion. It's natural. Anger in itself is not evil. In fact, there's several times in the Bible where God is described as angry, where Jesus demonstrates anger, and we're told in the Bible in places like Ephesians where Paul says, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Anger is a natural human emotion that takes place when something that you desire or something that you love is being threatened. When something that you desire, something that you want, something that you long for, or something that you treasure is being threatened or hurt or damaged, anger is a very natural human emotion. And where that thing that you love or desire is a healthy thing to love or desire, that the anger can be a very healthy, natural human response. And so what we have to ask when we're talking about anger, we have to start asking what is healthy or in the Bible words like righteous anger and what is unhealthy or unrighteous or sinful anger. And it's, it's important to kind of like understand how that works. And so there's a few questions that can kind of help guide you. Number one is when you find yourself being angry, which I'm going to be honest with you, 
in this season, I feel like even over the past few days, more than usual, just more irritable, more frustrated, quicker to, to kind of to find myself being angry. And I think a lot of people are feeling that. There are tons of psychological journals right now talking about how anger and irritability is sort of like so significant right now. And there's tons of explanations. Um, but underneath that, we still have to pay attention. We have to pay attention to what's happening. And so here's some questions to help you pay attention. Number one, what is it that you want that's being threatened? When you find yourself being angry, to actually step back, anger is a pointer emotion. So it's pointing to something you love, something you desire. So what is it that you love or desire that's being threatened? Might be a, a really healthy thing. I think about the term mama bear. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen a mother uh, who has a child who's been threatened or insulted or hurt in some way. But when you watch a gentle and kind mother uh, who's responding to a child or her child being threatened and you see that gentle, kind mother transform into this very terrifying and forceful presence, um, that's a powerful, good, healthy thing. It shows something about the protective care of God. But when it's your protection of your ego or your sense of control or your expectations, maybe unrealistic expectations you put on somebody else that they fell short of, or it's, or it's anger at something that your roommate tends to do or something that your spouse has done over and over, or it's anger at not having the sort of like peaceful day that you wanted or the type of evening that you experienced it, or, or your job kind of like not going the direction or a boss or your employer making a decision that, that pushed you in a different direction or made something challenging for you and less pleasant for you or less desirable for you. It's looking at those things and saying, what is it that I wanted there? I wanted to be recognized. I wanted to have a sense of control. I wanted a sense of comfort or peace or, or whatever it is. What is it that you wanted that's been threatened? And just to pay attention. Let the anger show you what your heart is currently desiring. Second question is, what are you doing with that anger? Right? There are even where maybe the thing that you love is a, is a okay thing, and a good thing that's okay to desire that thing and it's okay to feel angry, but what are you doing with that anger? How are you expressing that anger, right? You can express anger and you can share, man, that really was frustrating for me and that was really hard for me and I feel angry and I need some space to kind of breathe and process and I don't want to talk to you, but I want to do it in a constructive way. You can do that in a constructive way. You can have constructive conversations. You can actually graciously overlook things in a constructive way. You could also ignore things in a way that's not constructive, that leads to cold shouldering and smoldering anger that kind of festers inside of you. You can, you can kind of silently withdraw from somebody in a way that makes them confused about what's happening to the relationship. You can treat people with resentment and you can have passive aggressive comments that make their way into conversations. Or you can just kind of like tuck it away and find the sort of festering, smoldering anger bubbles out on other people that haven't wronged you. Maybe it's your family or your friends or others that you're in a relationship with where you're just finding yourself just kind of bursting out in different times. It's probably because there's anger in you that you're not dealing with in necessarily healthy ways. And the third question that you have to ask is what, what outcome are you looking for? So what is it that I love that's been threatened? What am I doing with that anger that I'm seeing? And what's the outcome I'm looking for? What is my anger actually creating? Is it actually constructive and building towards something just and healthy and, and good for people? Or is it destructive? And it's aiming at tearing somebody else down or, or making somebody pay for the wrong that they've done um, or, or whatever it might be. But what's your aim? What's your, what's your goal? Those things are so important as we feel anger, which is natural and human, like it's important to feel anger. 
It's important. I've struggled with that at times. I thought, hey, I'm not a very angry person. Part of that was just I wasn't dealing with emotions at all. I was stuffing emotions and finding myself numb to realities. And actually feeling angry at certain things can be a really healthy thing. But to pay attention to what makes you angry, what you do with your anger, and what you're kind of trying to create in your response is so, so important. And that's what Jesus is targeting in this passage is a type of anger that's so destructive. And so look specifically at what he says because he's not forbidding or confronting anger as such. He's confronting what we could call an unattended anger or a contemptuous spirit towards brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. He says this, whoever is angry, and, and the, just even the phrase being used there, the, the tense of the phrase and the word that's being used, what it's communicating is this sort of hanging on to this anger towards a person. This sort of like carrying around with you a frustration and even a, a resentment towards somebody because of potentially something that they've done. The idea is one commentator, actually multiple commentators talk about it as like uh, carrying a grudge, nursing a grudge, kind of like uh, continuing to sort of like let this thing fester in you and refusing to respond to it, refusing to actually like lean into dealing with it and resolving the situation. So you just let it fester and you're carrying it with you. And what Jesus is saying is when you carry that sort of resentment, when you sort of like hang on to this wrong that somebody's done, Um, It's toxic. It will wither not only your soul, it will be destructive to the relationship. And that kind of anger leads to not merely destruction in your own life and destruction in the life of others, but it it actually begins to obstruct your very relationship with God. He actually talks about in this passage, this idea of judgment and the reality that God is actually seeing things in our heart. So you could go to court and be tried for murder, but God is seeing in the depths of our heart saying, I see these things. And you're accountable for what's happening in your heart before God. And the passage is going to go on and talk about how that, how that tends to work. But I think it's so powerful to start saying, like, what does it mean to, to pay attention to situations where you're carrying around with you frustration or anger or resentment towards a person or a type of person? I think it's important. Like, even as I say that, just knowing that the Holy Spirit's with you, Is there a person coming to mind? A situation coming to mind? Uh, An an occurrence or or a wound from the past that's coming to mind? Now, I want to acknowledge that there are sensitive, sensitive things around this. There are people that have been hurt in different ways and kind of just like saying like, hey, you shouldn't be angry and just lean into reconciliation and forgiveness uh, is, is oversimplifying what can feel very, very complicated and overwhelming. And so I'm not trying to oversimplify your situation. But what I am saying and what God is saying, what Jesus is saying in this passage is that unattended anger that festers in your soul and smolders inside of you will cause your soul to wither and lead you and others onto a path of destruction. And that's what's happening in this passage. Um, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. Uh, Jesus isn't isn't like staying merely on this concept of resentment. He uses these other two phrases. It says, whoever insults his brother or sister. Um, and it's a, the, the Greek phrase behind that's a little more complicated. It used the word raka, which isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament. But it's basically saying whoever calls their, their friend or their neighbor or brother or sister in Christ, like basically you idiot, you fool, like in the authoritative Greek-English lexicon, uh, the translation of this word raka is numbskull. 
Um, so whoever says, whoever says you numbskull, when I read that this week, I thought, hey, I've never called anybody a numbskull in my entire life. So again, I feel pretty good about myself there. The idea is saying, you idiot. Like what an idiot that person is. What an idiot. Or pick your insult of choice. Like what you want to call people, what you tend to call people under your breath or in some sort of social media rant or to your friends or to your echo chamber of people that share your perspective of life. What an idiot that person or those people are. What an idiot. Or the second word, what a fool. You fool. What a fool. What a moron. Like you begin to actually attribute to somebody not just different perspectives or they made a mistake or they did something different than you would have done it or they have a a view on life that, that you think is unhealthy and wrong, but you start to attribute that sense to their sort of deep character. It's actually a dehumanizing and degrading statement to have that sort of contemptuous attitude towards another human being. It's degrading and dehumanizing. It's actually destroying and kind of undermining the goodness of the life that God's given all of his people. And this is convicting for me. I don't find myself getting angry at people all the time, but I do find myself having contemptuous or kind of like uh, a superiority complex towards other types of people who don't see the world the way I see them. And this has been super convicting for me, just thinking about Jesus is calling us to a better way, a way that's marked by love, a way that's marked by reconciliation and grace and kindness. And so in this passage, Jesus is saying these things lead to destruction. Actually, in the passage, he says that these people who carry around these sort of insulting, contemptuous, resentful attitudes are liable to, says, the hell of fire or the fire of hell. The translation there is actually looking at a real literal geographical place outside of Jerusalem, a place called Gehenna. And uh, Gehenna was a valley that had become a trash dump where trash was burned. It was their waste management system. People would dump trash into the valley of Gehenna. There's a whole backstory in the Old Testament about just the, the toxicity and the corruption that had happened, all these horrible things that had happened around this valley. And this, in the sort of like modern hearers or the contemporary hearers of Jesus' day, they're actually thinking about a geographical place where there's this unquenchable fire, this fire that is smoldering on and on and on. And Jesus began to use that place, the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, and he used that place as a metaphor for the judgment of God, a place where people are separated from the very, the very essence of what life is, separated from the presence of God and are experiencing misery, unmitigated misery. And what Jesus is saying is when we give into resentful attitudes and contemptuous spirits and start kind of treating others with contempt and kind of um, denigrating other human beings and degrading their human dignity, when we start doing that, we are drifting towards the sort of destruction and withered life of separation with God. This is not the life of God's kingdom. It's not what God has designed for his people. For, it's not what God has designed for humanity. And so as people that are supposed to be in this world as salt and light and showing the world a better way, a way to flourishing life, not withering life, he's saying when you give in to those attitudes, you are drifting towards the destruction and the judgment that if unattended will lead you towards a separation and a death that is miserable and eternal and painful. And it doesn't just bring that into your own life, but it also brings that into your relationships in your community. He paints this with such a stark, stark picture. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, this is the path to destruction over here, but there's a better path that leads to life. And that's the posture, taking the posture of grace and reconciliation. 
that grace and reconciliation will lead to life. And he, and he shares that really with two stories. And the first story right there in the text, I'll just sort of summarize it. He actually tells a story of a person. He says, instead of hanging on to resentment and hanging on to frustration and letting these divided and unreconciled relationships continue to, to fester and create pain and destruction in the community, instead of that, I'm going to offer you a better way. Here's a better way. And he says, now, if you're going to the altar to, to offer a gift, to make a sacrifice to God, and you remember that you've wronged a brother or sister, somebody has something against you, that there's some severing of some relationship, some unreconciled relationship, stop, leave your gift there at the altar, this animal sacrifice, leave it there and go and make that relationship right. Now, what's powerful about this statement is he's speaking to people in Galilee, in a, in a town called, or in a region called Galilee, which is roughly 80 miles away from Jerusalem, where the altar, the temple in Jerusalem, the altar is in Jerusalem. And so he's speaking to this community of people. When you make your periodic journey down to Jerusalem, and you're going to worship God, and you're going to engage in worship of God, but you remember you have a broken human relationship that's unreconciled, where you've wronged somebody and they have an accusation or, or some sort of thing that they're, they're holding against you. Like, don't think that you can just engage with God and have this like peaceful relationship with God while your human relationships are severed. He's saying you actually have to prioritize the reconciliation of human relationships to enjoy the sort of fruitfulness of the relationship that God desires for us. And it's a powerful thing. He says, leave the gift at the altar, take the three-day journey back to Galilee, Make that relationship right. Take your three-day journey back again to Jerusalem and then spend your time worshiping God. So this is like, feels like a totally unrealistic thing, right? Like a week-long detour to, towards their temple sacrifice. Like who has time to do that? And what he's saying is that he's calling us to live in such a way that when we come to worship God and we spend time worshiping God, we're not hanging on to these, these divided relationships. We're not we're not in a position where we're needing to kind of like go back years and years and years. Maybe we are right now, but the ideal is that we begin to lean into and prioritize this posture of reconciliation. Now that's complicated. It might need, you need to talk to a counselor or a trusted advisor that can help you sort through these things and sort of the, the complicated nature of what's happening. But wh how can you prioritize reconciliation? Because this is something that God holds so close to his own heart. See right there in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He's calling us to be a people that are marked by reconciliation. The second story he gives is a story calling uh, in the midst of a, a situation where maybe there's somebody that has some charge against you. You've wronged somebody in some way and you're kind of like holding back. You're reluctant and resistant to make that right. And now they're going to take you to court uh, and they're going to sue you. And in their culture, that was a really common thing because of their their whole society and the way it had worked out, but they'd sue you to, to make you pay back the debt that you owed. And it's also obviously common in our society in other ways. But the whole idea is that you would lean in to actually take the initiative to actually lean in and say, I want to make this right. I want to live at peace with you and I want to be at peace with you. And so can you help me understand how I've wronged you and how I can make that right and to apologize, but also to seek to make that right in whatever ways you can. And, and the image that Jesus gives is that when you don't do that, he says, you'll be cast into prison until you pay the last penny. And it's this image of bondage that when we go through life with unreconciled relationships and unattended anger and divided situations where we're at odds with people, it's a bondage that suffocates human life. And he's saying, I'm calling you to something way better. Now, 
what we find in this passage is if you're, if you're like me, I spent this week looking at this passage as feeling conviction. Relationships that are coming to mind, situations, people groups that are coming to mind, just seeing anger and contempt in my heart. Like, what do we do with that? Does, that, does this mean that God is like, you know, not gonna have any part of us or is he really frustrated with you? No, he's, he's really gracious. Uh, he has done exactly what this passage is all about. In our rebellion, in our wandering, in our constant kind of rejection of his reign, our resistance to his love, our ways of taking the, the gifts he's given us and, and pulling them away and using them for our own self apart from him, he took the initiative and he laid down his life. Jesus laid down his life to forgive us, to forgive us of our debt, to cleanse us, to wash us, and to restore us to relationship with God. That Jesus laid down his life. In this passage, they were going to the altar. We don't have an altar that we come to. We come to Jesus. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the altar. Jesus is the one we come to to find forgiveness and reconciliation and life and hope and joy and restoration. And when we begin to actually come to him with our failure, our failures with respect to anger, our failures and resentment, the ways we've carried bitterness, and we come to him and we say, God, this is real. I see this in my life. And we come to him in our failure. He actually meets us right there to show us love and grace and hope and forgiveness and to remind us of his patience and his faithfulness and his forbearance and his mercy towards us. And when we receive that deep in our hearts and marvel that though I have been angry with people, though I am irritable and though I have had a resentful attitude towards people and a contemptuous spirit towards people, God continues to move towards me with love. Though I have turned from his way of life and turned from his love again and again and again, his patience and his grace towards me and all of my foolishness and all of my idiocy and all of my anger, his grace begins to kind of like bring a healing and a joy and a refreshment and a new kind of life into our hearts. And he calls us as his people to so embody his love, to so receive and enjoy and drink from his incredibly gracious and merciful love that we begin to be a people that show that love everywhere. We forgive others, we show mercy, we show grace, we offer forgiveness, we ask for forgiveness, we approach others with humility in this deep desire to live in harmony and unity with our brothers and sisters. And when we do that, Jesus is saying, when you live like that, then you are agents of God's kingdom. You are salt and light in his world. May God help us to be that kind of people. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we need you right now. Uh, I just feel aware that, that your words in Matthew 5 are piercing hearts. Um, they've been piercing my heart bringing conviction. And so would you help us, Holy Spirit, as you convict us, which is good and, and we're thankful, we need to be convicted of areas where we're turning away from your wisdom and the life that you want for us. Would you remind us of your love, of your mercy, and of your grace? And where there are situations that we need to lean into, relationships or attitudes that we need to start paying more attention to, would you 
Help us, Holy Spirit. Protect us from the voices of the enemy that wants to push us in deeper into bitterness or into shame or into deeper resent or frustration towards somebody else. But would you guide us? Would you lead us? Would you bring healing and like a salve that, that heals and brings restoration into our hearts? Would you, would you be working that into our lives as a community? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.